Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. If you're new to the show, welcome. Abby and I have been friends since the day she was born. We both love drinking coffee and talking about our favorite horror movies together. You can find our episodes, blog posts, merch, and more by going over to goodmorningnancy.com. We work really hard on these episodes and do a lot of research. So show us how much you appreciate our work and head on over to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy. Remember, that's morning with an O-U. So today we're going to be talking about the 1982 alien body horror film, The Thing. Yes. Is- ah. <laughs> Abby really likes this movie, I do. I love it. So The Thing was directed by horror master John Carpenter, and it was written by Bill Lancaster, who is Burt Lancaster's son. <laughs> Get out of town. Yes. That's the best. So the movie stars Kurt Russell, Keith David, Wilford Brimley. <laughs> Diabetes. Yes. T.K. Carter and Donald Moffat. The amazing special effects were done by our friend Rob Botin. Yes, Team Rob. Yes, who at the time was 22 years old. A little baby. Yes, and he had previously done The Howling, yeah. which we talked about in a previous episode. So if mm-hmm. you guys want to learn a little bit more about Rob uh, for that movie, go back and listen to that episode. Okay, so the producers at Universal Studios were interested in making a film based on John W. Campbell Jr.'s 1938 novella, Who Goes There? The story had already been loosely adapted once before in Howard Hawks and Christian Nyby's 1951 film, The Thing from Another World, but producers wanted to, to develop a project that was more closely related to the source material. The Thing in The Thing from Another World was more like a Frankenstein monster rather than a body invader slash like shapeshifter. Mm-hmm. It's a good movie, but it looks really silly. <laughs> After numerous directors fell through, including Toby Hooper and John Landis, and numerous script rewrites, the film finally fell into the hands of John Carpenter in 1976. This would be Carpenter's first film to be done with a major studio. That was something I hadn't realized. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. He had done indie movies before that. Oh. Carpenter was a huge fan of Howard Hawks and The Thing from Another World, stating that he remembered seeing the movie when he was four or five years old and getting so scared that his popcorn flew out of his hands. Oh. (laughs) He read the novella Who Goes There in high school and was surprised how different it was from the original film. He was thrilled to start work on this, and he was really excited to do a more accurate adaptation, even though he was a little nervous because he did really love that version, and he's a huge fan of Howard Hawks. Mm -hmm. Uh, For horror fans out there, hopefully all of you have seen Halloween, he uh, actually, like, has that movie playing in one of the kids' homes, or both kids are watching it, Mm -hmm. and so, like... This was even before, like, he was going to do the thing. Yeah. He, like, he had, like, that movie in mind. I think it's also in The Fog, too, right? Oh, I, oh I see. I, I just watched The Fog the other day, and I can't remember. I think it is. It's, like, the the old 50s one, and it has, like, the thing script, like, yes. pop up on the screen. It's yeah. really cool. Yeah. So, obviously, he was a huge fan, and he was a little nervous about adapting it, but I think he did a good job. Yes. So the film would take time to get off the ground for a variety of reasons. So like I said, John Carpenter got it in uh, 1976, but the studio didn't think anyone would want to see an alien horror movie. So they get out of here. (laughs) Yeah. So they took their time trying to get it produced and we're judging (laughs) so much judge. It wasn't until Ridley Scott's 1979 space horror hit Alien came out that production for The Thing began to finally rev up again. As storyboarding and designs were finalized, the crew estimated that they would need at least $750,000 for creature effects. A figure Universal executives agreed after seeing the number of workers employed under Rob Bottin, one of them being one of the masters of creature effects, Stan Winston. 
uh, Winston actually came in very last minute um, because Rob Boutin had to be sent to the hospital. He was working so hard oh. on the effects. Yeah. Oh my so God. there were a lot of different people working on effects and they were like, okay, we need to up this. We need to really like get this budget up. Yeah. The effects budget eventually ran over 1.5 million, forcing the elimination of some major scenes where characters encountered the thing. Several scenes in the script were omitted from the film, sometimes because there was too much dialogue that Carpenter felt slowed the pace and undermined the suspense. He asked his actors to improv a lot of the lines that they had in the scenes that take place like during the first 30 minutes of the film. Mm-hmm. They just wanted a quick introduction to all of the characters and their personalities so that the rest of the film could be all about the alien. This worked out because some of the characters, like Clark, didn't really have any depth to them before anyway. Richard Masur, I think that's how you say his last name, mm-hmm. he plays Clark, and he came up with the idea that his driving force was the dogs, yeah. and how much he loved the dogs, and how much he loved them more than the guys that were there, uh, making him sort of like an outsider, and yeah. sort of suspicious already. Mm-hmm. So most of the movie was filmed in British Columbia and in Juneau, Alaska. John Carpenter said that Juneau was beautiful, but they didn't get any beer shipped out to them there. So that was like the worst part of filming in Juneau. Oh, God. There wasn't, he was like, uh, he was like, it's a very beautiful place. Only problem is, can't get any beer. <laughs> Priorities, yeah. you know, that yeah. would suck. <laughs> so the thing received mixed reviews Mostly negative reviews, mixed, but mostly negative. Yeah. Some reviews calling John Carpenter the pornographer of gore. What? Which is not a compliment, apparently. (laughs) I mean, oh, well. Yeah. So, Abby, with that said, could you please explain the plot to us? I sure can. Thank you. So, the thing opens on... It looks like the tundra, really, Mm -hmm. because they're in Antarctica. So it's like cold and snowy, and there is a wolf dog running through the snow, and he's being pursued by a helicopter. And the person or people flying the helicopter are Norwegians that are um, stationed at another base um, a few miles away from an American base. And there's a team of Americans there um, who are on an expedition and that kind of thing. So the wolf the wolf dog is running towards the American base and he's being shot at. So the team of Americans kind of rush out of the base and, you know, they see what's going on. And um, (laughs) this Norwegian guy like jumps out of the helicopter and he starts yelling at them and stuff like that. And he, (laughs) it's just kind of a cluster. So they're like, what the heck is going on? So in order to find out what was going on with the Norwegians and make sure that everything was okay, MacReady, who is one of the main characters of the movie, takes one of the doctors in a helicopter and flies over to the base just to check it out and make sure that, like, there's nothing crazy. Because they're all like, what's going on? Are we at war or something like that? So they head over to the Norwegian base and they discover that everyone there is dead. And everything has been frozen over. And they're like, what the heck is going on? And, uh... They find this body in the snow, and they're not exactly sure what it is. And there's, like, charred remains. Like, somebody was set on fire. (laughs) They load up the body and take it back to the American base to get it examined and, like, see what it is and stuff like that. And so, as night falls, finally, and they're all kind of, like, getting settled into their bunks, everybody hears this noise coming from the dog kennel, Mm -hmm. where all of, like, the huskies and stuff are. (laughs) There's this thing, a.k.a. the thing, that just, like, absorbs all of the dogs into its body and just becomes this disgusting, like, weird creature monster. You're not really sure what it is exactly. Like, it doesn't have, like, one form. It, It, yeah. It just kind of like, absorbs what's around it and mimics it and, like, tries to, you know, conform to that figure. So they have to burn the dogs. Like, they set it on fire. They kill the dogs. They're, like, shooting them, trying to, like, stop this thing from growing. They take that body to the lab and examine it, and the doctor discovers that this creature, whatever it is, 
tries to like digest what it eats, but also take its form. And then they discover that this thing is taking human form. So it's taking over the men there and trying to, you know, attack them and kill everybody. So they all lose trust for each other and they all suspect each other of being the thing. They pretty much all just die. They kill each other. It's a mess. So the last two left alive are McCready and Childs. So at the end of the movie, they they set the base on fire because they don't want the thing making its way to, you know, the rest of the world and taking over the world, basically. And right. they don't want it to hibernate. So, like, they don't want it to freeze and then thaw out and do the same thing. Right. They, the movie closes with them sitting in the snow, like, sharing some scotch or whatever. And McCready says, maybe we better just stay here. So they freeze to death. As far as we know, we don't know, but, like, it does end with them just sitting by themselves and and him, yeah, saying, well, let's just see what happens. Yeah, so who knows? McCready could be the thing as well. Yeah, they could... Or Childs, or, like, both of them. Oh, my God. You know what I mean? Well, and we'll get into that. This ending is wild. It is wild. And it's had people talking for, like, 30-plus years. (laughs) Yeah. The ultimate cliffhanger. Seriously, though, it is. Well, awesome, Abby. Thank you so much for reminding all of us of the plot. You're welcome. So let's get into some... Mm, This is going to be an interesting discussion. Okay, so the Bechdel test. (laughs) This is a film... With zero women. Zero. Zero. None. None percent. None percent. (laughs) So it doesn't pass. (laughs) Just doesn't. The only females in this film are the taped version of Let's Make a Deal that they have that keeps playing (laughs) over and over. And there's there's a woman in that. And then Adrienne Barbeau. Who plays the DJ in The Fog. Uh-huh. She's actually the voice of McCready's computer. Nice. So that's, I guess, a woman, but she's Sorta. not real. <laughs> so that those are the only two women in this entire film. Yeah. Dang. <laughs> it's crazy. Now, Carpenter has said that the thing might be a female. Oh, plot but, twist. Yeah, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't think I believe that. You know how people just say things? Yeah. Yes. (laughs) I think he just said that. Yeah. I don't think that the thing is... I don't think it matters. I don't think the thing has any sex. I think it's just a thing. Yeah. So there weren't any women. Sorry. No women. Zero. Kurt Russell noted how because there were no women... uh, that he noticed there was no, like, posturing on the set. Yeah. Because not only were there no women in the film, like, as characters, there were no women on the set either. Like, as the crew. There was zero women. Like, one woman was pregnant, I guess, and she had to leave. Yeah. Because she was pregnant. (laughs) And then she, I guess her position was filled in by a man. And so there were no women anywhere. That's nuts. Yeah, it's a little, uh... It's it's a little interesting. It's like a men's retreat. I guess so. <laughs> Jeez. So there was also like no, I guess like no sexual tension BS that was happening on the set either, mm. which I thought was kind of interesting. And if we look at this in a way where we're trying to be as realistic as possible, like I guess if it's this place where there are zero women anyway, these guys didn't have to do too much maybe acting. <laughs> they're all cranky yeah like they all like could just be themselves anyway yes okay so before we continue i'd like to add that in the past we've reviewed these horror movies with the bechdel test in mind like we just tested now everyone should know what the bechdel test is but in case you're new to this whole feminism thing the bechdel test is based on alison bechdel's long-running comic dykes to watch out for the premise is to find a movie where there are simply two females with names who speak to each other about something or someone other than a man this test is incredibly hard to pass for some reason but surprisingly a lot of horror films do pass it not 100 percent, as you know especially if you've been listening to our show for a while but a lot of the time it does pass and it's it's pretty great 
But we here at Good Morning Nancy feel that even though we love this genre, there's always room for improvement. And even though the Bechtel test is very important, it's true that in order for certain genres to be inclusive, we need to have more than one test. Mm-hmm. 5038.com had a great article back in December 2017, which I've attached in the show notes for you all, where they talk about how like new Bechtel tests and new questions should be approached when watching a movie. We're not going to use all of those tests that they had in their article, but I did take some of the questions from some of their tests and I kind of like made it so that it would fit the genre, I guess, a little bit. Uh, So these are, you know, the questions that I've picked out and I hope that it's at least a step in the right direction for us to look at more inclusion in our favorite horror movies by asking these questions. Mm -hmm. One, was the supporting cast at least 50% women? The answer, no. (laughs) Um, two, did a woman write, direct, or produce the film? The answer, no. Yikes. Three, was the final girl a person of color? And by final girl, I mean the survivor at the end of the film. Like, that can be a man or a woman. To me, gender doesn't matter. So, uh, was the final girl at the end of the film a person of color? Actually, yes. Childs is a man, a black man, and he is one of the survivors. And four, there were no LGBTQ characters in this film. Okay, so let's look at the thing. So, okay, number three does pass. Uh, Childs is a black man and he does survive the film, which is amazing. Yay. Um, I was actually speaking to some other horror fans in a Facebook group that I'm a part of. And a black woman spoke up uh, when we were talking about the thing and she was like, I'm just paraphrasing here, but she was like, look, I know there's a serious like a women in this film, but it's one of my favorites because it was one of the first horror films that I had seen with a black man in it mm-hmm. where like they were strong and like they were survivors. Yeah. And like they didn't run away from the problem. Like they were written like really well. They're yeah. Just... Yes. She went on to say that seeing these like strong black men in this film was like seeing her dad on screen, you know, mm-hmm. and I was like, just like teared up. That's very sweet. I think it's very sweet, and I'm I'm really happy that this film does, you know, have inclusion in that way at least. Yeah, for sure. Abby, it sort of reminds me of what Emma Stone said at the 2018 Academy Awards, mm-hmm. where she said something along the lines of like, oh, so, you know, these four men and Greta Gerwig were nominated for Best Director. And I was like, girl, like, one of them is a black man, and yeah. this is his first film. And it's a horror film with black stars in it. Mm-hmm. And the other one is a Mexican immigrant. Yeah. Del- Guillermo del Toro. Yeah. And I was like, she needs to take a breath. Because, mm-hmm. like, in order for, for feminism to be, like, like inclusive, like, that's the kind of stuff that we can't bash. Well, because, you know, ultimately it's about people. Because, you know, at the end of the day, we're all just people. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it should be inclusive, and we do need to include men and, like, not discount that. <sighs> <laughs> now, there is an interesting article in The Atlantic by Noah Berlaski, and the title of this article is What the Thing Loses by Adding Women. Mm-hmm. And the title kind of makes my head spin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But... Uh, Let's hear this guy out. It's actually a really interesting article. Uh, Here's a very long quote from it. Genre requirements for slashers generally include women, but not just as love interests, as main protagonists. So why should we write them out? Part of the answer is John Carpenter is a director who, in Christine, They Live, and many other films, has been particularly interested in male-male relationships. And part of the answer, perhaps, is provided by queer theorist Eve Sedgwick. In Epistemology of the Closet, Mm -hmm. Sedgwick argued that Western culture is, quote, structured, indeed fractured, by a chronic, now endemic crisis of homo-slash-heterosexual definition, unquote. And then the article continues, basically for Sedgwick, male identity always inevitably collapses into an agonized, shapeless horror. Strong manly men who are male-focused and uninterested in femininity are in danger of becoming homosexual-slash-not-men. On the other hand, men who are too women-identified are also in danger of becoming not-men, a.k.a. things. Thus, women in the thing 
would be kind of out of place, as would male-female love. This is because the thing can be read as being obsessed with the fear of failing to be a man, and concurrently with homosexual panic. The men in the original are constantly examining each other for evidence of the thing, the spreading contagion that may make them not men. Mm-hmm. And that's a big quote from the article. Mm-hmm. Abby, what do you think of this article and this viewpoint? Do you think that this is a good excuse for maybe not having women in this film? I think that, you know, in order for this film to work the way that it does... I mean, I think it is a valid reason not to include women. Because like we were saying also in the beginning, you know, they didn't have to worry about the sexual tension on screen. Yeah. And honestly, I think it kind of adds to that sort of um, like homosexual undertone because you have all of these guys, you know, who are filming together and spending this time together and they don't really have time to look at male-female love. Yeah. So I think it kind of like, it really adds to the layers of the movie in that way. I think you're right. I think that because, especially since this happened, uh, what, this came out in the 80s, and people were getting freaked out about AIDS. Yes, exactly. And I mean, this, I mean, John Carpenter even said in an interview on the DVD, he said, uh, you know, you can look at the thing in, in many different ways. And, and the first thing that came out of his head was, it could, it could be AIDS. And it's like, yeah, I bet you like 100% that was on his brain while making this. Well, in a, in a way, I think it sort of like by not coming out and saying like, you know, this is about like men who are not comfortable with homosexuality. I think he's just trying to normalize it, you know? Maybe by not addressing it, you're just kind of like putting it out there for people to kind of make that decision for themselves maybe. Right, yeah. So you're kind of putting it in the hands of your audience. And I really like that about this movie. Yeah, well, and you know, like, we've said this before and we'll say it again, like, horror movies are based around, like, the the current fears that people have during that time. Exactly. Like, that's why zombies have evolved over the years because zombies represent, like, a walking, sometimes running, representation (laughs) of our fears of how we're going to die. Yeah. And, you know, I think that this that's what the thing is trying to say obviously the thing has evolved and we're going to talk about that at the end of the show about what we think the thing represents now and what it means to us but uh, I think that when they were making this that was sort of on in their mind and John Carpenter made the very conscious decision to not include women Mm -hmm. in this film there are a bunch of different interpretations of what this means and obviously we'll get into that towards the end of the episode but There were a couple people who mentioned um, the documentary that we always talk about in these episodes, Nightmares in the Red, White, and Blue, but they also kind of likened it to um, how people were feeling like during the Cold War and Mm -hmm. like searching for communists in our country and that kind of thing. because this is a Mm Reagan-era movie. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it has so much meaning and it is like heavily steeped in the culture of the 80s so yeah 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 yeah. and not that AIDS was not a problem for women uh it became like it was back then it was more like of of a male issue yeah yeah and so I can definitely see the connection there yeah well there was so much fear attached to it yeah and you know people didn't even know I remember my parents talking about AIDS and when they were young like younger and it was going around and my dad said he's like nobody even knew like how you got it like Mm -hmm. nobody even knew if you should kiss anybody if you should even like touch people sometimes yeah and it was like that is so sad like how can i interact with people Mm -hmm. like nobody knew like what to do good morning nancy is proudly sponsored by recess coffee we wouldn't be able to create such great content without being fueled by their magical beans and the great part is is that each batch of coffee is locally artisanally roasted and it comes from fair trade farmers gracie what's your favorite blend 
Oh my gosh. Okay, so my favorite blend is the Westcott blend. It has African and Indonesian beans mixed to create a clean, rich, and full-bodied cup of coffee. Mm. It has a rich floral vanilla aroma with a sugared almond flavor and a lemon finish. Yum. Ooh, delicious. My favorite is the Austin's blend. It's a unique blend of African, Indonesian, and Central American beans roasted to create a characteristically rich, dark, and smoky cup. It has a bold roasted nut aroma with chocolate flavors and a smooth, fruity finish. The coffee is seriously so good. I don't even have to put any cream or sugar in it. I just drink it black like my soul. (laughs) So guys, head on over to RecessCoffee.com to order yours today. Or if you're a Syracuse local, stop by either shop at 110 Harvard Place or 110 Montgomery Street. So drink coffee, shoot lightning. Now back to the show. Let's talk a little bit about the men in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, they all seem very realistic to me. I've heard like some, you know, a lot of like major critics like talked about this film and how one dimensional these guys were. No, and how I don't, I don't agree with that either. Um, listen, they, their backstories don't really matter. In this. Yeah. And as we mentioned earlier, uh, John Carpenter cut out a lot of, like, talking in this. And he asked his actors to kind of come up with a backstory themselves and, like, have that bleed into their character. You know, just, like, their weird, like, quirks that they have. Like, the weird, like, clothes that they wear. Like, have that sort of, like, bleed out in the first 30 minutes of the film without having to just tell everybody. Mm-hmm. Like, like, there's a thing called, like, seeing, not telling. Yes. You know what I mean? And you kind of can see who these people are without having anyone tell you who they are. Mm -hmm. And another good example is Kurt Russell kind of figured his character was a pilot in Vietnam. And that's why he was a drinker. And that's why he was kind of a snot-nosed kind of face guy and very paranoid because he's the most, I think he's the most paranoid out of everyone in this movie. Yeah, for sure. And you don't need to know that for you to get his dis- like to understand like his decision making in this you kind of get that in the way he says things yes. and the way that he acts in the first 30 minutes mm-hmm. so i don't know i think that just flew over people's head i think so too and honestly it's sort of better i think for the movie not to know their backstory because you don't you don't know who they are and you're like i don't know what this person is capable of i don't know what kind of like home they came from or background they have i don't know if maybe they're like creepers or like criminals or you know you just don't know and that just adds to the tension and like the suspicion of other people like obviously you know the doctors are doctors and like the cook is the cook and like that kind of thing but you know but it makes it scarier because when the thing takes over them, you as the audience don't really know them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you as an audience member watching it, I think would be more afraid because you can't tell if what they're doing is off. Yes. Yes. Because they do act a little off. Um, I yeah, know they're like, uh, like a little bit awkward. But other than that, you're like, uh, are you just awkward? <laughs> yeah. You, know? you don't know. It's so great. And yeah. I think they, they, all of them did a very good job with their characters and, Who's your favorite? I love Childs. Me too. I, I think Childs is I think Childs is funny. I think he like he to me is the real leader of the group. Yeah. Where Kurt Russell's character is like kind of the hero, but he's he's the hero because he's like the brawn. Yes. I think people look at him as the hero because he's the one who's making all the decisions, but I don't agree with his decisions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're crappy. They're, they're, they're all about him. That's yeah. why. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, th- I can see why people, like, say, like, oh, because Kurt Russell's the hero. I'm like, no, he's just the one making all the decisions, and that doesn't necessarily make him the hero. That just makes him the most paranoid out of the group mm-hmm. and, like, the most controlling. Yeah. Uh, but I think Childs is the hero, and I think Childs, uh, he thinks about himself, but I, I think he tries to, like, stop and be like, because there's a scene where, like, McCready, Kurt Russell's character, is outside, and Palmer, who in the next scene we find out is the thing, yeah. Palmer's like, no, let's, like, blow him up. Let's, like, get rid of him. And Childs is like, wait. Yeah. <laughs> hold on. 
let's think about this. And everyone else is like freaking out. And he's, to me, like trying to like be like, okay, let's just stop. Yeah. <laughs> Take a breath. <laughs> Figure this out. Yeah. So he's my favorite. I like him. Yeah. Who's mm. your favorite? Jed, the wolf dog. <laughs> No, just kidding. I love McCready. I yeah because I have like an old man crush on Kurt Russell, but um, he is a little cutie though. He is. He has a nice I, laugh and smile. Yes, I do. I really like McCready though because he is just kind of like he's kind of doing the best that he can with what he has, and he is kind of overly aggressive, but he's just yeah. trying. Like he's just like. Like, I don't know what to do. So, you know, what's really interesting is that I think that that really matches our personalities. Yeah. And what's so great is that both of them are the survivors at the end. And I think I think that's really cool. (sighs) Yeah. I think that it's sort of poetic that they both end up at the end. Yeah. I think that it's meant to be that it's supposed to be those two at the end. Yeah. It's like the yin and yang kind of. Absolutely. So, yeah, I totally agree with that. Okay, so let's talk about Rob Bottin. Yes! Because he's... He, <laughs> My man. He's our favorite. Mm-hmm. So the 22-year-old... I can't believe he was 22. So tiny. I had to, like, just graduated college. I, like, didn't know what to do with my life. And here he is rubbing elbows with John Carpenter. I know. He's younger than me, my age right now, like, getting to do all these cool horror effects. That's yeah. so awesome. So he met John Carpenter on the set of The Fog because apparently one of his really good friends was working on that movie with John Carpenter. And Rob Boutin was like, oh, my God, I love Halloween and I want to meet John Carpenter. Yes. So his friend was like, oh, I'm working on the fog with him. Come to the set. And he was like, oh, my God. So he gets to the set and he's like, oh, my God, John Carpenter, like, I'm a huge fan of yours. Can I be in this movie? Just straight up asked him. And John Carpenter was like, yeah, sure. And he became one of, like, the sailor ghosts. Whoa. Yes. That is how you get it done. You just... You just go for it. The worst thing they can say is no. Yeah. Or, like... (laughs) Get out of here. But, like, you're farther than you were before, so. Exactly. So he got to play one of the ghosts, and, you know, while he was on the set, he was like, oh, by the way, John Carpenter, like, I do special effects. And he was like, oh, really? He's like, oh, yeah. Like, it's pretty great. And this is all of my ideas for everything. And John Carpenter was like, whoa, this is wild. Oh. And then, like, while they were filming The Fog, he was like, so, Rob, uh, I'm going to remake the thing. And Rob was like, what? And he was like, yeah, you should do special effects. He was like, (gasps) I will. (gasps) And that's how he got to do it. That's so magical. So magical. So the thing's ultimate strategy, I guess, is to get, like, into a heavily populated area where it can, like, theoretically, like, assimilate and, like, take over the entire planet. (laughs) How do you create a creature like that? Like, if that's your, like, you know, if someone says, like, this is the creature that you have to create with special effects, go. Like, what do you do? (laughs) Well, I think he was like, let's not make it one thing. Like, yes, let's just make it all the things. (laughs) And that way we have unlimited power. So, (laughs) and his sketches are like wicked awesome for this movie. Okay, so you know what? He actually went to a comic book artist. That's amazing. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And okay. Because he couldn't, like, articulate to John Carpenter, like, what he wanted it to look like. And so he was like, just go see this artist and have him draw everything. So, yeah, but you're right. He said, like, I want it to be, like, really messy. Like, I don't want it to be a very clean-cut transformation or a clean-cut assimilation. He was, I want it to be, like, really gross and obnoxious. Mm-hmm. Okay, so my favorite scene, and it's probably the most memorable scene is the chest chomp scene and it occurs when dr copper who's played by richard dysart attempts to revive norris who is played by charles hallahan (laughs) with a defibrillator (laughs) and when he presses the paddles to his skin norris's chest opens up and it it grabs copper's (laughs) forearms and he eats his arms off um it's really awesome it is it's so good it's so good oh my god so abby how did they do that that scene do you remember um so they had they used a bunch of different things like um uh, they used mayonnaise and like a couple dry ingredients that made like 
the chest look kind of like rippled and chunky and stuff. Um, but for like the slime, they used KY jelly. <laughs> so they actually got a guy who had lost his arms <laughs> in an industrial accident. <gasps> they put a like fake face over the guy's face over his face oh and my God. they made it look like the actor who plays the doctor and they attached like uh like wax bones and like rubber and like red jello and when they it chomps his arms off it chomps off like that that yeah. gooey stuff right yes. and then when he takes his arms out and then there's that wide shot of him like screaming with like his arms gone that's the the guy who lost his his arms yeah, with wow. the prosthetic face over it. That is why. Yeah, and like the mechanical jaws were like a clamping, like mm-hmm. like a bear trap type thing. Holy crap! Not an actual bear trap, right, but that's right. how it was. Like the mechanism worked. Gross, nasty, but amazing. Yes. What's your favorite uh, transformation scene? The dog scene. Yes. It's really, really sad and heartbreaking for me because I have husky and yeah. it looks like my dog, but. The creature is so freaking awesome. Yeah. And I love, like, the look of the dog skull and stuff like that with, like, the teeth. Oh, my God. It's just so good. It's so good. And I think that was the scene that Stan Winston helped do mm-hmm. when Rob Bottin was, like, <laughs> dying, basically. Because he was working so hard. Yeah. Um, do you think the the effects hold up all these years later? Yes. I agree. 100%. Yeah. Uh, Owen Gilberman wrote an essay for EW about how the effects are awful and they don't hold up. Oh, give me a break. And listen, I read the comments uh, and, the, and nobody agreed with him. Yes. Everyone was like, you are the worst and none of us agree with you. Like, you have no clue what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, yes. You know what, though? Through. For people who are not into the horror genre like we all are and... Like, if you're just going to randomly watch this movie, you're probably like, what what is this? Because you're so used to, like, the CGI stuff. You know what I mean? Like, not practical effects. But if you're like us and you've seen a lot of really terrible horror that does not stand the test of time, it's way different. Well, and there's a scene, like, uh, McCready is holding the dish with Palmer's blood in it, and he has it, like, up here, right? Mm-hmm. And he puts, like, the hot wire mm-hmm. to the blood to see if it's if it's the thing, and it, like, it, like, jumps out of yes. the hand. That's actually a fake hand. I never noticed that before. Whoa. It's a fake hand, and it's, so it's not Kurt Russell's hand, and he just has this fake hand in front of him, and they have a mechanism in that hand that pops out and shows, like, the gross, like thing blood oh my god i never noticed that me neither to me oh my god i think it's great i'm glad you feel the same way heck yeah we're getting towards the end here let's talk about that crazy ambiguous ending Mm -hmm. as you explained in the plot summary abby childs discovers mccready and they sort of sit down together and drink alcohol together and sort Mm -hmm. of like warily like watch each other as the compound burns in the background and because they don't know and we don't know as the audience who is the thing, if even any of them are the thing. Yeah. And Childs says, you know, like, what are we going to do now? And McCready says, well, why don't we just wait here and see what happens? Okay. So <sighs> for years, fans of the film have been speculating on the ending and who is the new thing and if anyone is the thing. And there's a theory that Childs is the thing. And that's like the biggest theory is that Childs is the thing. But there are different theories as to why he can be proven as the thing. Okay. So one theory, which I hate, I hate this theory, I think it's dumb, is that then there's a no breath theory where McCready is breathing, you can see his breath in the cold, mm-hmm. and then Childs is breathing, but like you can't see his breath. Doesn't that have to do with the lighting? That's what I said. <laughs> also, McCready just like ran out of that building, right? After he experienced the Walter Brimley thing yeah and Wilford Brimley Wilford Brimley yeah Yeah. after he experienced the Wilford Brimley thing yeah so he's like (laughs) panting (laughs) and Childs is just like walks up to him like hey so like McCready is like breathing heavily because he just got out of like a very serious scary situation and Childs is not breathing very heavy just because he's just walking naturally up to him yeah so I I just thought that theory was dumb. Also, Bennings, I think is his name, was the first guy to turn into the thing Mm -hmm. who's in their troop. And he, when he goes, and he like yells, he has breath. Yeah. 
So I think that's a dumb theory. If you believe it, you're dumb. No, I'm just kidding. I just don't agree with you. (laughs) So another theory is that McCready put gasoline in the bottle of J&B because during the time that he is trying to blow up the place, he's like filling those bottles with gas. Whoa. And he hands that bottle to Childs. Childs drinks it and nothing happens. But we cannot prove that that bottle did not have JMB in it that had gasoline. Yeah. And for me, I think like if the thing can assimilate perfectly into a, a, wouldn't his taste buds be the same? Like, wouldn't he react to things the same way? Maybe. And wouldn't he, like, freak out if he was, like, you know, because, like, the the hot thing, like, touches the blood? Mm -hmm. Like, wouldn't the gasoline, like, affect him even if he was the thing? Maybe. So that's an interesting theory. I also don't really agree with that one. Hmm. Another one which has had people talking for years and a lot of people agreed with until the Blu-ray came out when you could, like, clearly see the scene. Mm -hmm. Um, Childs before we see him, before he leaves the, the compound, yeah. he is wearing a navy coat. And he, like, escapes and everyone... Oh, yeah. And everyone is like, where is he going? And he kind of disappears, right? Uh-huh. Uh, when he comes back, the next time we see him is when he sees MacReady yeah. after MacReady burns the place down. And he's wearing sort of like a beige-colored coat. Yes. But listen, so the Blu-ray came out, and then, of course, everything became clearer, like the image became clearer. Yeah. And it's actually the same navy coat, but with frost on it, because he's been outside. Oh. So a lot of people- That makes sense. Literally for 30 years, people were like, this is the explanation as to why Childs is the thing, because the thing can't, can only, like, assimilate to, like, organic things. It has to tear through clothing in order to become that person. Yes. Uh, But that, that- Theory was very recently debunked when the Blu-ray came out. That's wild. Yes. So it's so great. So (laughs) now you look at this movie and there's no, to me, clear explanation on who the thing is. Mm. So with all of those theories, in my opinion, debunked, who do you think is the thing? I think it's McGrady. Because he's so gung-ho about like finding the others and if this creature really wants to like flourish and you know take over the world he's gonna be willing to like sacrifice a couple limbs (laughs) kind of thing um but also like he explains to everyone who i don't know if like anybody else really thought of it or explained it but like he's the one who is like we can't let it freeze and hibernate here because somebody else is going to find it and, you know, it's going to wake up and who knows what's going to happen then. Like, who would have even thought of that? Because yeah. as I was watching that, I was like, that is not the first thing that would cross my mind. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of weird that, like, he has that idea. It's The stuff that he says at the end of the film to Childs about how, like, well, if one of us was the thing, you know... It, we're not really, I guess we're not really going to find out just because if one of us was, something would have already happened. He's so he's kind of like, passive about he's like, instead of aggressive, like he's been through in the entire film. Yes. And he's kind of like buying time because he knows that they're both quote unquote going to die there. Yeah. So he's like, I'm not actually going to die, but this guy is going to die. And he's not going to try to kill me. Like, I'm going to, like, Because Childs is a nice on. guy who yeah. doesn't do that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I think. Wow. That's actually, that's really great. That's better than mine. Mine is. <laughs> oh, no. Mine is that neither one of them are. I don't think either one of them is. And that's really? sort of the sadness about it. Yeah. Because they just sort of sit there and look at each other and, like, forever and ever until they both die probably they're wondering if they can trust that person and then they end up dying not ever knowing that they actually could trust each other and maybe find a way out of there Mm. that's my theory um it's probably wrong but there's no right answer though i think that's the big thing is that john carpenter said he's like well i know who the thing is but forever john carpenter (laughs) but like i don't think i think he just has his own theory who the thing is i think that's just his own idea of who the thing is i don't think that this movie is set up for you to know for sure Mm -hmm. and i think that's what's awesome yeah and i think that you that's a great argument for mccready that's actually the first really good argument that i've heard from mccready oh, everyone says childs and i'm like why are we picking on childs i think it's because just 
it's like that um there's a word for it but like it's kind of like reverse psychology like oh he's such a nice guy he must be a bad person (laughs) like well and he left very strangely like why did he leave yeah and it's like well probably because the thing was in there (laughs) yeah because that's what he i because they go to that uh that lookout right and they find out that brimley that's not his real name. That's the actor's yeah, name. But yeah. Brimley is, isn't is there. They find out that he's in the compound and he turns off the generator and he yes. just plans to freeze there. Yeah. So probably Childs was like, oh, crap, the thing is actually here and not where they are. I'm going to get out of here. Like, yeah. yeah. So I don't know. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Cool. Mm. Well, <laughs> guys, let us know, like, who you think the thing, like what your theory is we want to hear yeah for sure all right so final thought so the thing shares like dna with movies like invasion of the body snatchers and philip k dick's works where like all of his works are about the question what makes us human and i mean we even mentioned earlier that having an all-male cast like touches on like masculinity and like what makes a man among other men and what makes him a threat to other men but i think you had a really great idea and and i think you you're gonna have really great input here uh is mostly because of what has been happening in hollywood recently uh the me too movement and Mm -hmm. sexual assault yeah Uh, how about you expand on that and like toxic masculinity well um i think that if we were to bring this into like a modern setting the thing you know is toxic masculinity or like the fear of getting found out for who you really are yeah because like all of these celebrities have come out and everyone is well like maybe people in hollywood aren't shocked but like regular people like you and me are like oh my god i never would have suspected or thought that he could be this way can i uh read you a list of people yeah who really kind of shocked me yeah um first of all comedian louis ck yes that was a real bummer yep uh james franco kevin spacey <sighs> dustin hoffman ben affleck and even pop singer melanie martinez yeah and just recently uh katie perry like kissed one of the contestants of american idol uh kind of as a joke but he was sort of like he did he wasn't prepared for it he was a young kid he was 19 and he said he was saving his first kiss for his first girlfriend that's so sad and he and yeah and she like was like oh kiss me on the cheek and he went to go kiss her on the cheek and she moved so that he kissed her lips gross gross because if that were flipped like yeah we that would be, would be outrageous yeah because it's because even that, when I heard that, I was like, that's still outrageous. It doesn't it matter if it's you, a man or a woman. Yeah. You, like, took that experience away from that person without their permission. Yeah. Ugh. And that Ugh. was kind of a jerk thing to do. And so, like, w- with the guys here in this compound, it's like, obviously, they're all very, they share close quarters with each other. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure that they all know, like, their backstories and, you know, have heard stories of their families and you know their relationships and what kind of people they are and then like this horrible thing happens to them and they completely do a 180 they're not the same person and you find out that like in order to protect other people yeah you kind of have to like make them an outcast or you know kill them ultimately so that it doesn't spread to other people Obviously, I don't want people to die. (laughs) Like, that's not what I'm saying. But you have to stop that in its tracks before it perpetuates. Metaphorically speaking, you have to kill it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So that, I thought, was really interesting how, like, we could kind of bring it into modern times that way. Like, who can you trust? Yeah. I mean, it's all about fear. Yes. So, And and it's all about fear of not knowing who you're living with or who you're working Mm -hmm. with like yeah it could be all about like not trusting your like from your uncle to your boss it's like who can i who can i be around well and i think obviously we as women and i'm not saying that this has not happened to men in previous times but they're more open about it now i think and they're really starting to talk about it and have a conversation but i think it's interesting that 
there are no women in this movie and it just focuses on the male perspective because it's like as a male you're seeing this happen like what are you gonna do about it kind of thing because it's not always on women you know so like if you see something say something kind of thing right that's my thought on it i think that that's amazing i want to kind of end it on uh mccready at one point says i know i'm me Mm-hmm. That's a big line in that film. <laughs> yeah. I know I'm me. And that's when he's there with the blowtorch and everybody else is in front of him. And he's like, I know I'm not the thing, but I don't know anything about you. Mm-hmm. And then I'm watching that and I'm like, yeah, but that's not fair because you might like, I don't know that you are you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I get it. Like, you don't know that I'm not the thing, but I don't know that you're not the thing. And it's really, it's it's a very unfair stance. And it's like, you know, someone could say, well, I know I'm not a sexual predator. I'm like, but I don't know that. Right. Like, prove to me that you're not, you know? Right, exactly. It's that sort of situation. Mm-hmm. And it's so sad because it's like, when you remove all the guts and gore from the film, it's, it is, it's a movie about people dealing with paranoia yeah. and people dealing with trust. And, you know, the question, do we band together or do we destroy each other mm-hmm. until nothing is left? So that's like our generation's version of the thing. Totally. <laughs> I completely agree. Yeah. Well, you guys, thank you so much for listening to the show. Please follow us on social media for updates and good times. <laughs> we are on Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Facebook at Good Morning Nancy. And let us know what you think of John Carpenter's The Thing. Like, what does the thing mean to you metaphorically? Let us know. We love talking to you guys. Mm-hmm. Also, give us a five-star review on your favorite podcast app. It seems like it's really simple, but it helps us out a lot. So much. And it gives us recognition. And tell your fellow horror-loving friends about us, too. Like, spread the word. Spread the love. <laughs> the love. Yeah. <laughs> and that, I mean, that's a huge help, too. Like, letting people know about our show. Thank you guys so much for listening and have a great morning. Bye.